Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National, in partnership with the Real Estate Forms. I'm Aaron Cameron. As always, with me is Adam Pawatic. A reminder to our listeners, at the end of the episode, after the little jingle, Adam and I are going to have an after show. We kind of digest this discussion, and this is going to be a very good one, I promise. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Michael Emery, who is the founder and CEO of Allied REITs. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Pleasure to be here, guys. So, Michael, standard format for us. We're going to ask you about your history, maybe, and I'm going to frame it in. Like, what were your motivations in life to get to where you are today? And maybe just start with why did you go into university? Why did you become a lawyer? Why did you start Allied? And just what were your what was the thought process as you were making those decisions throughout your career? Well, you know, it's a good question, and it's one I can answer fairly, fully, and accurately because I was fortunate as a young teenager to have a father with whom I had a great relationship. My dad was an engineer by training and made his career as a professional manager in the pulp and paper industry, interestingly enough. And at one point in high school, my dad said to me that if he had it to do over again, he would study law. And I had never heard him say that before. I was very interested in what he meant by it. And he said, a lot of people I've encountered over the years who have been successful in many different walks of life, whether it's business, whether it's journalism, whether it's actually practicing law or politics, have had legal training. So it seems to be a very versatile and useful training And I kind of wish I had had that as a young person, as opposed to the more technical, specific training of an engineer. And that actually resonated with me, even though I was a dipshit 16-year-old or something at the time. And when I got through undergraduate level university, it really came back to me and I decided to study law. And that got me to apply to the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, which at the time, and and I think to this day, was considered the best law school in the country. And I was fortunate enough to gain admittance, and I studied law and loved it. Everything about it appealed to me, the location of the school, the students, and the curriculum. But I also knew fairly early on that I didn't want to make my career practicing law. So I was fortunate I did get to work with a very good law firm, Aridan Burles, in the corporate securities department. And that gave me a window on the world. I told Aridan Burles that I didn't see myself being a lawyer long-term, but that while I was, I would give them everything I had. And they were totally comfortable with that proposition. And so about three years into the practice, I had been exposed to a number of real estate issuers at the time and got a little bit of insight into real estate and how it was done, although I'd really have to emphasize little bit. And for whatever reason, and I can't really isolate the reasons, but for whatever reason, that business appealed to me. There was something about the physicality of it, the fact that real estate existed over time and was visible and was part of a larger community, really, really interested me. And I did seem to have the ability to see space. So I was young enough at the time to think, well, I can do that. I'm as smart as the next guy, so I'm sure I can figure out how to do that. And I was able to put together a very small private company with a little bit of funding. And we started buying, and this is 1988, by the way. So I know really nothing about real estate. We're at the tail end of an incredible boom. I mean, it was unbelievable what was going on. And we went out and started buying small storefront retail properties with a little bit of office on the second and third floor in really well-located 
intersections in the city, Young and St. Clair, Young and Eglinton, Young and Front Street. And there were good instincts behind that selection. We felt, I felt in particular, that that stuff would hold up in good times and in bad. I didn't expect bad time ever to come, but I thought if it did one day, this will hold up pretty well. The other thing we did is we didn't over-lever the buildings. We certainly used first mortgage financing, but we didn't use the kind of crazy leverage that was available in the late 80s. Anyway, that wasn't really that formative because everything we did in the first 18 months went well. Every asset got more valuable. Every lease we wanted to execute, we executed rent levels we expected or even higher. And I thought very briefly that I was a genius destined to become a mogul of unbelievable proportions in the real estate world. And of course, when you look at what happened, I made the classic mistake that young people make. I mistook a bull market for brains. The unfortunate thing is the bull market came to a crashing end in 1990. The Toronto real estate market literally collapsed. And not only did the market collapse, but the actual industry collapsed. And I remember going home at the time and telling my wife that my career was going to be set back for a full 12 months because of this real estate crash. And I was really pissed off. And she told me to just suck it down and deal with it and not bother her with my little problems. The reality was we melted down for five years. Real estate had no value. Everybody collapsed. And we were able to survive by the skin of our teeth. And actually, that's when we learned how to run real estate in the most adverse environment imaginable. We learned how to solve problems. We learned how to restructure financing. We learned how to determine whether a building was terminally flawed or terminally ill or whether it was salvageable and then what it took to salvage it. It was fantastic experience. It was painful. It was hard. It was not at all profitable. Never did I work harder for less than I did in the first five years of the 1990s. But by the end of the first five years of the 90s, we knew what we were doing. We knew how to run real estate. And we had the ability to attract capital. And indeed, we had learned a few lessons that enabled us to ultimately pursue the opportunities that we pursued. So maybe I'll stop there. I had multiple levels of good fortune. Number one, I had the opportunity to get a very interesting and flexible education in what has turned out to be a pretty good gateway career, which is why so many lawyers have ended up in real estate. Number two, I ended up making my career in the city of Toronto, which was beginning to transform dramatically. Number three, I had the best and most brutal education you could get in commercial real estate in the first half of the 90s, and I survived by the skin of my teeth, but I survived. And I actually feel grateful for all three things. And I don't know how much credit I get for any of the three things. I suppose I can take some credit for having survived the early half of the 90s and having actually learned how to run real estate at the most fundamental level. And I guess the other thing I can take a little credit for is we made an observation in the early 90s that became the foundation of our business going forward and really became the foundation of Allied. And that was that restored heritage buildings that we acquired in 1989 and 1990 held up unusually well in the downturn of the first half of the 90s. 
And we couldn't figure out why. We kept them full. We kept them generating acceptable levels of net rent. They weren't heroic levels of net rent, but they were acceptable, gave us a return, gave us some earnings. And we couldn't figure out why this was happening to us with these funny buildings when the towers were 25% vacant and were basically leasing out at negative net rental rates. And then we realized as we thought about it that there were three things that gave us an advantage. Those restored heritage buildings were close to the core. They were on front and young, essentially. That was important. That made them locationally desirable. Number two, they had really distinctive internal and external attributes because they were built 100 years ago and they had been adaptively reused for office use above grade and retail use at grade. And that meant they had high ceilings, post and beam structural frames, hardwood floors, exposed interior brick, and really interesting external architecture. And people liked that, not just because of the aesthetics, but because it helped them attract, motivate, and retain the talented people they wanted to run their businesses. So that was number two. Number three, and I'll never forget this, it it sort of dawned on me one day, it was blindingly obvious, and I couldn't believe it took me so long to realize this, but our taxes and operating costs were $8.50 a foot. I remember it like it was yesterday. In the towers, they were $22.50 to $25 a foot, just the T&O. So what that meant is we could lease space out at 20 bucks. We got to keep around 12 bucks net. The towers were essentially leasing space out at 20 bucks and they were losing anywhere from 250 to five bucks a foot negative net. And so it was that combination of proximity to the core, distinctive internal and external attributes and lower overall occupancy costs that allowed these oddball buildings, funky buildings, heritage buildings, brick and bean buildings, whatever you wanted to call them, to outperform the towers, literally. And it was that observation that allowed us in the mid-90s to see what was going to happen when the King Spadina and King Parliament redevelopment plans came into effect in 1996. And all of those buildings which had previously been restricted to light industrial use could be put to office use, could be put to retail use, or could be put to residential use. So when that happened in 96 under Barbara Hall's administration, we saw a huge opportunity. and We began to exploit it and we were credible. We knew how to run real estate. We could attract capital. It wasn't cheap capital, but we could attract it. And so we started in 96, we accelerated in 98, and by the year 2000, we actually couldn't create space fast enough to meet the demand. And the rental rates we could extract from really good users went from about 10 bucks net per foot to 24 net over a four-year period. And it was that value proposition, close to the core, distinctive, and available at lower occupancy costs that gave us the ability to achieve this kind of earnings growth and add this kind of value. So that's kind of the story. I want you to keep going. And this is great. I'm not trying to to slow you down. And I'll let you keep going because we're only at the year 2000. We've got 20 years to cover still. But I just I want to unpack a couple of things you said, because I mean, real estate is one of the most capital intensive industries, if not the most capital intensive. And back in 86 or 88, you said you had a little bit of capital, maybe just start and rather than your, maybe not just necessarily your specific experience, but for there are a lot of real estate entrepreneurs today, tomorrow, trying to get that first seed capital. What did you have to do to find it? Where were you digging for that money? Well, you know, originally it was like a lot of young entrepreneurs. It was a little bit of family and friends that basically represented the initial source of capital. It was that capital that allowed us to launch. So that was phase one. The other thing we did 
is we raised capital from investors for specific transactions. So friends and family to ground the business and to give the business a bit of working capital, and then investors to fund the specific transactions. So right from the beginning, we were accountable to investors. And if there's any message I would send to young people today who are looking for capital to launch an idea, it is there are more mechanisms today for attracting capital than there were when I started in the business, but the barriers to entry are higher than when I started in the business. So what you've got to understand, if you're going to attract capital, it is going to carry with it an intense accountability obligation to that source of capital. You can't just take the money, go away and have fun and report back in a couple of years as to how things went. There's a huge accountability that goes with it. I can honestly say I was reasonably good at that at the beginning, but I wasn't great. I think as our business has evolved, we've perhaps even become great in terms of accounting to our capital providers for results. And as a public company, it's the most intense form of accounting, and you guys are only too aware of it as well. So the key is, I think it starts with friends and family, but before you can do much, especially in real estate for the reasons you mentioned, you need fairly big money and you're going to need other people's money. You're going to need investors, whatever form they might take, and you're going to be super accountable to those investors. And if you're good at accounting, you'll get their support and you'll get future support. Things will go wrong. Never hide from it. Get in front of it. And if you get in front of it and have a plan or how to correct the problem, good investors will support you. But the accountability is is one thing a lot of young people don't recognize. And if you're not prepared to be accountable to others, it's not easy. And sometimes it's not at all fun. You're not going to get any significant amount of capital from anyone. While we're on the topic of raising capital, what was more difficult? Raising capital in a good market in 1988 with no track record, raising capital after you had experience and after you've gone through the early 90s crisis, whenever it is that you got back into purchasing properties. So now you've got a track record, but you're in a bad environment. Or thirdly, your IPO. Which one was the uh, most difficult? Well, I'll answer the last question first or the last. The IPO was brutal. The IPO'd in 2003. We were very odd, and that's probably the nicest way of describing it. We were very small from a capital markets perspective. And getting the IPO through to successful completion was agonizingly difficult. It was just horrendous. And the investment bankers kept saying to me at the time, and this was a good lesson, They said, Michael, persevere if you get to the finish line and if you're able to perform for those who have provided capital to you, if you report, if you hold yourself accountable, you'll be amazed at how easy it will become to attract vastly larger amounts of capital going forward. And I remember at the time thinking, you guys just want me to get this deal done so you can get your commission and life will go on. But in fact, those investment bankers were right and they did not lead me astray. And I was amazed even by 2004, 2005, because we did perform and we did hold ourselves accountable, how much more capital I could acquire and how much easier it was. So the IPO was brutal. It was the most difficult in my experience by far. What I found in my whole career, though, is there's always a bottleneck in the real estate world between capital and opportunity. When capital is scarce, opportunity tends to be abundant. And 
when opportunity is scarce, capital tends to be abundant. And in the mid-1990s, opportunity was unlike I've ever seen again. It was unbelievable. Huge fortunes were made then by astute participants in the Canadian real estate industry. But capital was like so hard to get. And I probably saw a continuation of that in 2003 when we went public. If I look at, say, Allied in 2018, 2019, capital was available to us in almost infinite quantity at lower cost than we had ever experienced previously. It was unbelievable. The bottleneck then was opportunity. Fortunately, Allied has grown in a way where we are able to get the lion's share of the kind of opportunities that fit our investment and operating focus. We just have tremendous positioning in the major markets with respect to the kind of assets we focus on and the kind of assets we operate for the best outcomes for our users. So, but that tension tends to exist. One of those things is going to be a bottleneck. So when there's a lot of capital, it's really hard to get opportunity and you really have to compete aggressively. When there's a lot of opportunity, for whatever reason, there tends to be a shortage of capital. Now, again, the market has evolved. If I look at the current crisis, not to spend any time on it, because I, it's probably not the point in time to do that. But if you look at the current crisis, it actually isn't a liquidity crisis. The real estate industry has a super abundance of capital, but the opportunities have sort of dried up temporarily. I think that's going to change. But it's an interesting dynamic that every organization will face. One of those two things is going to be harder, and the focus will have to go to the harder of the two things. But the IPO going public is really hard. It's worth it if you have a good vision and if you're prepared to be accountable. But it's brutally difficult. So, Michael, we've kind of worked our way through the 2000s. Maybe we'll move on. And let me just date stamp it. I think it's, it's November 22nd or maybe a plus or minus a day. I lose track. And you said we, we're in the middle of the pandemic crisis, but I don't think it's necessarily something we, we're going to focus on today, if that's okay with you. I mean, everybody, we just more or less finished your 30 years history. We're in the middle of a very, very short crisis that will have very limited long-term effects. And I'm just, I'll qualify it for our listeners because I'm sure there are people who say, well, no, 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 I want to hear what Michael thinks about the impact of COVID on office and, you know, what's the office market ever going to look like going forward? And, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I suspect you'll take a long-term view and think that this is a short-term challenge. And in the end, everybody will be back into the office and the office market is going to succeed and grow and prosper in the future. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And I think your summary of the crisis was perfect. It's a short-term event that will not change human behavior fundamentally and will not change the evolution of office space in any material way. It'll probably have some incidental or marginal impact on it. So I totally agree with that comment. And I think I'm on record here, there, and everywhere in that regard. So there's probably no point. Okay. My okay, good that now. COVID's behind us. Let's not talk about it. Let's focus on more interesting things. Before we hit record, you had talked about a sort of an inaugural uh, environmental, social, and governance, uh, I guess is a policy or uh, initiative that Ally is taking on. So why don't, we, why don't we just talk about that for a minute? Yeah, that's a great subject. And I thank you for remembering it. We've talked about how being a public entity makes you accountable to your constituents with respect primarily to financial and operating performance. And that accountability is a great discipline and very valuable. What's happened over the past five to 10 years is the desire on the part of institutional sources of capital for public entities to be accountable in terms of environmental sustainability, social responsibility, and governance has gone up and up and up. And it's not a fad. It's not a politically correct bit of nonsense. It's very real. What institutional investors have ascertained 
is that companies that are sensitive to environmental sustainability, social responsibility, and governance tend to perform better financially. So their goal isn't to save the world, although we all want to contribute to that. Their goal is to identify companies that are financially more successful, and they found a real correlation between financial success and legitimate attention to environmental sustainability, to social responsibility, and to corporate governance. And we as a public entity committed about two years ago that in 2020, we would submit formally to assessment by GRESB. I think it's the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. And it's a fairly exhaustive process. And it took us literally a year and a half to do all of the field work necessary to have the data to submit to GRESB for assessment. We've done that. The results will be published, I believe it's on November 28th by GRESB. And then we'll issue our inaugural ESG report on December 2nd. And it will be the first time that we have publicly submitted ourselves to scrutiny with respect to ESG. And I'm very excited about it because I believe deeply in it. And even more importantly, there are areas where Allied is genuinely strong and there are areas where Allied definitely needs to improve. And what this does is it provides the board and management with benchmarks against which we can measure ourselves to identify strengths and weaknesses, and then more importantly, to measure improvement over time. So I'm genuinely thrilled that we're at this point. And as I say, there are weaknesses that we need to address and there are strengths that we have developed. And going forward, we'll be able to establish priorities rationally and we'll be able to measure our success in a very public way. So our constituents can, in a way, subject us to the same kind of scrutiny on ESG that they do with respect to finance and operations. It is a sign of the times. It actually is something that I think becomes even more resonant and more important because of COVID, although its importance certainly doesn't derive from COVID. It preceded COVID in a very, very big way. And I think COVID simply illustrates why emphasis on environmental sustainability, social responsibility, and corporate governance is important. All good public entities are attentive to this. And the real estate business is particularly significant because what we do can have a huge long-term impact on the carbon footprint. And what we do right can really help the world and what we do wrong can really hurt the world. What we do right can actually facilitate human wellness and what we do wrong can really hurt human beings. So it's very meaningful in the context of the real estate business and probably of the sectors, it's most important in the office sector because we have tens of thousands of people coming in and out of our buildings every day and how those buildings in a way treat the people who use them can have huge impact on the quality of their lives. And so it's in that context that I'm excited about this. I don't want to overanalyze it, but it is a very important trend in real estate generally and in public real estate specifically. And it's a good evolution. And Canadian real estate organizations have responded well to it. We're not unique or alone. I think all good Canadian real estate organizations have made real strides in that regard and, and will continue to. 
you're totally correct. And congratulations, of course, for subjecting yourself to that kind of scrutiny. It's not a matter of just talking the talk, which every company is doing now, but not all of them are walking the walk to back it up. And this would fall in that category because nobody likes being too transparent for a lot of their inner workings of the company. I want to ask you next about the well. I got to think that unless I'm missing something, that's probably your most high profile development. And specifically, I want to ask about the unusual aspects of it. I would say that you've really based an investment thesis long-term around unique real estate. And this is an opportunity not to just influence a, a building or a neighborhood, but you're basically creating that neighborhood and that development. It's, a, it's going to be the showpiece. So what about that project you find most exciting from a uh, community building aspect? And what are you putting into it that's make a standout from the other buildings? What's unusual about it? Well, the first thing I think to point out about that project is the fact that it is a collaboration primarily between ourselves and Rio Can. And it started in 2012. So it's, it's almost eight years old now in terms of its origin. And it represented a collaboration between two public entities that did two things for the collaborators. Number one, it moderated the risk that each of us was taking because it is a very, very large project. And number two, it brought complementary expertise to the project. Allied's expertise is obviously very high, highly developed in terms of office environments and RealCan's expertise is obviously very highly developed in relation to retail space. And RealCan is also evolving into a multifamily residential business, as you know. So the collaborative part of it was very meaningful to me Neither RioCan nor Allied could have or would have undertaken that project on its own. We certainly wouldn't have at Allied. It would have been too big for us. And I don't believe that I'm assured by Ed and Jonathan, RioCan wouldn't have either, even though at the time they were vastly larger than we were. But it's been a very, very constructive collaboration. And I think it illustrates how real estate has become so big that most of these projects can't be executed without different organizations combining their resources. The other thing, and you alluded to it, Adam, very clearly, the other thing I love about the project is it's not actually creating a neighborhood, but rather completing a neighborhood where Allied has had tremendous presence from the beginning of the urban transformation. And by that, I mean King and Spadina. So the way I always envisaged the well was as an extension of the King Spadina neighborhood, which has certain attributes we're all aware of, the restored heritage buildings, the urban texture, the amenity-rich environment. And what we wanted to do with the well was create an extension of that environment to which so many Torontonians and so many businesses are drawn by providing state-of-the-art, technologically superior urban workspace, by providing well-conceived and well-merchandised retail space, and ultimately by providing great living space, either in the form of condominiums or in the form of multifamily res, uh, multifamily rental, I should say. And that's because we know that in the inner city, those uses mutually reinforce one another. So we wanted to create phenomenal workspace to complement the great workspace in Kings, but I know we wanted to create phenomenal retail space to make the neighborhood richer in terms of amenities and we wanted to create yet more great living space, both in the form of condo ownership and in the form of rental, which I think is something the city needs. So it's that extension of a great neighborhood that I think represents kind of the culmination of the project for Allied and RealCan. And I'm actually sitting in our head office looking to the south and I can see the office tower rising now and it is nearing the top. And I think it's going to be a beautiful addition to the skyline. 
But what really thrills me is that it'll be accommodating incredible knowledge-based organizations who will represent customers for the retail users, and it'll be accommodating a very large number of men, women, and families who, again, will represent customers for the retail users, and it will add to an already dynamic inner city neighborhood. I actually believe, I'm biased, of course, but I still maintain that King Spadina is the best inner city neighborhood in, in Toronto, and the well is a wonderful extension of it. And then, Michael, let's just jump. I'm almost, I think they're adjacent sites. Let's just move a couple meters north to the King Toronto project with West Bank, which has got a lot of people excited to see what that ends up looking like because the, the renderings are almost out of this world looking. So let me just talk about that project and working with West Bank and just their creativity and the things that they, the way that they look at real estate is so different than basically any other developer in the world. Well, we're fortunate to have great partners and to have worked with great partners over a, a considerable period of time. And as I mentioned before we started recording, one of the things that we've learned is that design pays. It's not a frivolous thing. It's not something that you do because you have an artistic sensibility. It's something you do because the people who use buildings today and the people who live in neighborhoods today are sensitive to and interested in the look and feel and texture and impression that the built form creates. So in the case of King Toronto, and it's a great illustration, it's a great question, West Bank and BIG primarily came up with a vision for the entire development that I think was inspired by Safdie in Montreal with Habitat. And it sort of evolved into almost a series of mountains revolving around a courtyard. And then it involved connecting King with Wellington. So it was also, it was designed to be beautiful and unique, but it was also designed to be an integral part of the King Spadina neighborhood and to allow people to move easily from King to Wellington and then really from Wellington into the well and then back up. And it was almost designed to gather people and to create movement and to encourage movement within the context of the neighborhood as a whole. So it is, I think, and a lot of the design flair has to be credited to West Bank. Although I have to say when the city tried to get us to adopt a different, more conventional design, I played a very big part in resisting that. And I'm very proud that I was successful <laughs> in resisting that because the, well, we hated it. Adam and I were fortunate enough, Ian Gillespie was a guest speaker at one of First National sort of our national sales conferences. And I think we've told this story on the podcast before, just about, you know, the city just wanted a whole bunch of glass towers again. And even when he was, I maybe it was candid because it was a small group of people just talking about protesting in front of City Hall. Or I don't know, you must have been making phone calls to every city council you had a relationship with just saying, this is, you want something. I mean, we've just talked about the well in King Toronto, two of the most I don't know, monumental developments in the city for a long time. I got one last question and then I think Adam's got a follow-up, but what's next, Michael? Like, Where's the next big, incredible, jaw-dropping development that you've got on the horizon? Or can you tell us? Absolutely. But I'll tell you what's next conceptually and then maybe point to specific examples. One of the things I think that Allied has achieved is putting itself at the forefront of providing distinctive urban workspace for knowledge-based organizations. That is our mission. That is what we do. The well is one way of doing that. King Toronto is a very different way of doing the same thing. In the case of King Toronto, it involves the creation of more condominium space than we would normally be part of, but that was the best way 
to optimize that particular piece of land. But as we look forward, Allied's goal, the next big thing, is to continue to be a leading provider. I won't say the best because I don't know if anyone can ever characterize themselves as the best at anything. But to be a leading provider of distinctive urban workspace in in major Canadian cities. And for us, that's Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, and Vancouver. Calgary's in a bit of a downturn now, as we all know, a severe downturn, but it has a future. And so the next big thing for us is probably 700 DLG in Montreal. It's actually a conventional office tower that we bought in 2019. And a lot of people said, well, whoa, that's everything you guys say you're not. So what the hell are you doing? And what we responded by saying is, you're right, on the surface, this is a conventional office tower. It was built for Bell Canada in the 1980s. But it has huge floor plates. It has very high ceilings. It has outstanding column spacing. And what we can do is, in a way, reduce that building back to its base elements and create exactly the kind of environments that knowledge-based organizations want. So we can do vertically there what we did horizontally in De Gaspe up in Mile End, where we took a million square feet of more horizontal space, again, with high ceilings, huge floor plates, and great column spacing, turned it into a complex that's now 100% leased to some of the best knowledge-based organizations in the world. And it's even leased to Sun Life, which is a great organization, albeit hasn't been an organization that we might conventionally have thought of as a knowledge-based organization. I think that's exactly what it's becoming. So we want to do this vertically. That's the next near-term big thing. But for us, the longer-term next big thing is to continue to be at the forefront of providing truly distinctive urban workspace for knowledge-based organizations. Wherever that takes us, we will go. If it takes us to a conventional office tower and we can do it, we're going there. If it takes us to another brick and bean building, we're going there. There are many ways to provide this to our users. And so for us, we don't define ourselves by the kind of format we operate, we define ourselves by the users. If the format will serve the users, we're there. So we want to stay at the forefront of serving knowledge-based organizations. That's been the big thing, and that's the next big thing, and figuring out how to do that in a way that isn't obvious is what we love doing. The obvious is great. We'll do that too, happily. But if we can see creative ways to do that, we're all in. I like it because it's, it captures what you do, but allows you to constantly evolve. And it's great to be nothing if not iterative, but have a clear vision throughout. I would say that a bridge between this discussion about the forward-looking vision for Allied would tie into the next question I want to ask, which of course is stock price. And stock price is a reflection of the market's forward-looking view on an organization. For anybody that's not in front of a computer, it's a quick year history. Allied was at $60 cruising into COVID, lost about half, then has, has regained about half of that since. And this, that's not unique uh, for the REIT space. I, I think that your chart would probably look pretty similar to, to many others in the REIT space. That That's just the market sentiment for REITs in general. Do you think that there's an accurate prediction of where major real estate holders are right now, that the market's capturing it? Are, are they missing anything? Would you say uh, you know, buy, sell, hold on the entire REIT universe right now? You know, what, what are your thoughts on what the market's interpreting of us uh, real estate people? Well, it's, it's a great question. And, and as we discussed at the beginning, no CEO is ever happy with the stock price. That's a given. It's never high enough. The value is never appropriately recognized. So taking that into account, I think the following is helpful. First of all, the stock market is the greatest valuation mechanism that human beings have ever created. It's astounding. It makes all kinds of mistakes in the short term. 
it makes very, very few mistakes over the longer term. So when you see volatility, you're seeing an environment that is likely to be replete with mistakes. In the case of real estate during the pandemic, there is no doubt in my mind that the stock market valuation of real estate assets disconnected from the underlying value. The underlying values have not eroded in any material way, but the stock valuation has eroded massively. And this applies across the board. It's more severe for certain sectors than others, but the disconnect is quite profound. We saw the same thing during the global financial crisis, exactly the same thing. Over roughly the same period of time, what happened then is real estate didn't decline in value to reflect the stock price. The stock price ultimately rose back in value to connect or reconnect with the underlying value. And that's, I think, the process we're seeing happen now. The disconnect was very extreme. In Allied's case, we went to about $32 off a $60 high, and we actually tested that low about a month ago. So we went there twice. We went down to 32, went back up to 45, then people got scared again. We retested the low at 32, and today we're at, I think, 40, 41, something like that. So the process of the stock price starting to reconnect with the underlying value of our assets is beginning to occur. My belief is this, and I, I'll speak only for Allied because there I'm an expert. The stock price will eventually fully reconnect with the underlying value of our asset base. Of that, I have no doubt. And in fact, it'll probably ultimately trade at a premium to the underlying asset value, which we historically do for all kinds of good reasons and for the same reasons. I think in the case of what I don't know, sorry, just to complete that thought, I don't know when that will happen. I don't know if it'll be next month or next year or two years from now. I know back in the global financial crisis, it took Allied 24 months to get back to where it was before the crisis started. So I'm assuming if I just use that as a rough indicator, maybe we're halfway back to where I think a reconnection will occur. It has been different for different sectors. Industrial has held up better for obvious reasons. Infrastructure is a good place to be right now. Multifamily res has held up a bit better. Again, for good reason. Retail has been hit very hard and we're beginning to see it correct. Again, it was an overreaction on the part of the market. So my belief longer term is we will see the stock market ultimately get back to a point where it's more or less in line with the underlying value of the real estate. I don't believe the real estate is going to go down in value, especially high quality urban real estate. Not everybody agrees with me, but we're starting to see data that actually confirms that. One of the things about a market going sideways is when you've got no data, the market's going to go, can go anywhere. And in this case, there was no data. Things looked bad. The market went as it should. It was rational. It created opportunity. I think what's happening now is generalist investors in the market are starting to say, wow, that's value. And people are going to start to take advantage of it. I'm going to start to get in now. That is happening. Whether it continues or falters in the next six months, I don't know. I think things are looking pretty good for value right now. The election in the US, the vaccines. And I think the way the real estate businesses have performed, nobody has seen their revenue streams collapse. Some people have seen their revenue streams erode, but nobody's revenue streams have collapsed. And ultimately the value derives from the revenue streams. So we're in a process of correction in relation to real estate. I don't know how long it's gonna take, 
but I do believe ultimately it will be a complete correction. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong, of course, in that the timing is unknown. But of course, with all the recent vaccine announcement, it at least does place a, a probable timeline for people to operate under. And we do have a disclaimer at the end of the show about this not being investment advice. So do, do as you will with the information provided. But I personally feel comfortable buying right now myself. Michael, I want to thank you for your time. You've been very generous with full hour of your thoughts. Uh, you know, Aaron and I are very appreciative of you doing that for us today. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast and Forma for arranging this with Michael. This is uh, a episode done in conjunction with the upcoming Toronto Real Estate Forum at which Michael will be speaking. But most of all, I want to thank you, Michael, today for joining us today. My pleasure, guys. It was yeah, really Thanks, fun. Michael. Appreciate it. Thank you both. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we digest conversations we just had. That was a fun one. I've never really been exposed to him that much. Like I guess I've seen him on a couple of the sort of the keynote speaker stuff, but he's he's not really a regular panelist. So I wasn't sure what to expect, but geez, he's very candid, very easygoing, very open and transparent. You didn't get a corporate vibe let's just talk my speaking points, right? Like he was kind of free flowing, which is really, I mean, for what you and I do, very refreshing. Well, it's nice too. He's also a good storyteller, which works well in the, in the podcast medium. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for listeners, every once in a while, you get a guess where it's Adam and I are struggling to pull interesting comments out. He, he, he almost could not get him to stop. It was like, okay, hold on. Let's, let's, uh, you said interesting things. Let us ask more questions. So yeah, um, I've got a bunch of things that he said that I, I just thought were, I mean, insightful, but uh, you know, also super interesting. The one that really caught my attention was Having that unique, that, that's, that niche of real estate, where it's not just office, he's not an office, he's in a very specific strip of downtown areas with a specific look, that it is a, it's a defensive player, as a defensive element, that it performs better in down times, and if friends get hammered, he's got more room to play with. And that was really surprising. You don't normally think of office as a defensive play, but, or even you can identify that that would be such, but he has done so, and invested billions of dollars into that and it's proven yeah. itself to be quite successful. That was oh, yeah. one that really kind of caught my eye. I debated bringing this up while he was talking, but I mean, because he was kind of telling these stories in big chunks, I, I kind of lost its flow. So I didn't go back to it, but did you pick up that the realization of the brilliance was all done in hindsight, that it was totally a fluke. The whole concept of allied retrofitting offices was 100% fluke, like just absolute luck if you listen to the story, right, he raised a little bit of money, like seed capital from family and friends, went and, I guess, raised some money through investors on individual assets. You talked about it. He said the strategy was to buy retail buildings that just happened to have some office upstairs in core areas. Then the 90s hit and he basically survived by the skin of his teeth. And then in hindsight, looks back and goes, wow, because they're core located, because they're 100-year-old buildings with really strong guts, and because the office operations are much less than the towers, that's why it's successful. Huh, I guess I should probably replicate that. And then the yeah. whole thing, and that's, that's the story, right? I just find that, I mean, and, and for our regular listeners, that is a common theme when you talk to these guys that you see super successful. It wasn't like we had this grand investment thesis when it executed. He literally was like, well, I guess I'll raise some money, buy some assets. And by almost by the quint, like you almost think the, the 90s, the early 90s recession and issues actually was revealed to him how great of an opportunity these sort of brick and beam office investments are. If the 90s crisis doesn't occur, he may not have realized how good he had it figured out and he would have gone on to build apartments in, in tertiary markets. I mean, who knows? Like, just so interesting, right? Or still managing second-story office above a bunch of retail that, that he owns. But it does get to the core, as you said, the very successful people is, if nothing else, adaptive. You know, yeah. The market's constantly changing, constantly presenting new opportunities, and the brightest will pick them off. And, and that's what it is. It was not seeking out, it wasn't taking an investment theory and trying to force it through the market. It was looking to the market and, and see what it provided. <laughs> I just love it all in hindsight. He's like, huh. How did I survive that? Oh, look at that. Look at these things. Wow. Okay, well, let's just keep doing this then. And the next thing you know, he's allied. Re and just for those that are not in Toronto, you can't walk a block in the downtown core without seeing the 
10 inch by seven inch or eight inch allied properties, gold plate that they stick on all the buildings that they own. Like they literally own probably a building on every block in the downtown. I don't know, from young to Bathurst to Jarvis to the waterfront. Like it is pretty incredible. The amount of assets that they've acquired over time. Yeah. Of difficult to acquire real estate. I mean, this is, that's a competitive strip of a competitive city for real estate. And they've done a great job over the years of building up just a very, very impressive portfolio of buildings. It was funny though. I mean, you know, we talked about these large REITs with the billions of dollars and market caps through the roof and and all of that, but still that some projects can be too large for any single one to digest. I mean, I know we see it on the finance side. You know, Maury, our founder, talks about, you know, some point, the not too distant past where everybody thought that a $20 million apartment finance deal was like a big deal. And now $100 million deals are floating around in the marketplace on a monthly basis. And it's as true on the on development side as well. Just these projects have gotten so large, so capital intensive, the timeline's so long. I mean, the well is under construction, but as Michael highlighted, this is eight years into the process and they're not completing tomorrow, I don't think. We'll have to get more information. We've been planning on bringing one of the cost consultants in to talk about it. So there's a hook for a future episode, but it's something like 18 cranes on site. There's 14 towers. Like it is just insane, right? The amount of development. I think I heard somewhere, and I'm, I'm making this up, but it was something like like a third of all concrete use in Toronto right now is being gobbled by the well. Like just just nuts, the amount of capacity that's got to be that's being absorbed by that that one development site. I would love to see the cutoff North America wide for cities that don't have 18 cranes on their skyline currently. <laughs> and see what's yeah. what's the large largest city the one single allied development would be outpacing for development. And we actually, we should have asked for the total dollar value on it, or maybe it's not even publicly disclosed yet, but uh, I know it, it is massive. And for anybody who's not completely plugged into what we're talking about, end of the show is not the time to talk about it, but this <laughs> is just a mixed use project that boggles the mind in a very unique parcel, just tucked away just off downtown. It would be unbelievably difficult to duplicate that anywhere else downtown. And this is the kind of project that even for somebody like Michael Emery, who's done a lot, this will, I'm sure, carry a prized, a prized spot in the trophy in the trophy case. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you mentioned it, but we should probably add context. It's immediately south of King West, which is the trendy, the trendy neighborhood. It was an old Globe and Mail newspaper factory and a car dealership, and probably some other smaller pieces of land. But it is, it is just massive. I mean, the location doesn't get much better, right? What do you think about the? interpretation of the stock market. I thought it was really insightful about the underlying value and the moment in time day trading value on the stock market that it can disconnect. You mentioned that the market is rational, but we also know it can be irrational at times and, and that's where the you know, opportunities can arise. So Aaron, what's your, what's your buy, hold, sell right now on uh, REIT units? Yeah, or I mean, no, I, we'll say all REIT units here. Yeah, well, I mean, we had this conversation with Mark Rothschild a couple of weeks ago about even if it's just you're talking about the AFFO, right? Adjusted funds from operations and what does that look like and how do different analysts group it? And then, of course, the future development values that are not tabulated. So he's probably looking at all these giant things that he's working on that I'm sure add significant value to their underlying, you know, their, their net asset value, underlying va- asset value that aren't being captured by REIT prices and, and, and REIT analysts. So I think it's just a common theme. I mean, we're obviously biased. Obviously, have inside, not insider information, but certainly have perspective on the real estate market that I think the average trader, the average mutual fund manager just wouldn't necessarily appreciate or, or take the time to understand, right? And related to that, I applied that with the announcement of all the vaccines that uh, this maybe is a time to buy. But I will admit that something did give me pause is when Michael was talking about his first run-in with a downturn in the 90s, he thought he was going to be delayed by about a year. And we're sitting here thinking, well, we're about a year out from back to normal. And we could be wrong. You know, there, there is that possibility as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, shoot, when we started working from home, I remember one of my team members came up and said, what do you think? Like two weeks, three weeks? Like when are we back? Right. And, and I was, I even then I was like, no, it's going to be at least three months, like maybe five months. So like prepare to hunker down. Here we are. I don't know, whatever it is eight months in and I'm telling everybody it's another eight to 12 months. And, and that's, you're probably right. That could be heavily underestimated. I, I sure, sure as heck hope not as I'm sitting in my cold basement shivering, but uh, <laughs> anyway. 
Yeah, I, uh, I hope this soon we're back to recording podcasts in person at the very least. But for the larger economy, I hope we're back for other reasons. But I think that is the after show. I really enjoyed that episode. Great speaker, great storyteller, great story for that matter. Super interesting. And uh, we look forward to seeing everybody in the next podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.